This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This week, as of Wednesday, the BC Liberals will no longer exist. The party is rebranding as BC United. The BC Liberal Party voted on the name change in November with 80% of its membership supporting a rebrand. And let's bring in Richard Zisman, Global BC's reporter at the legislator, Legislature, to talk about this. Hey, Richard. Hey, Robin. How are you? Not too bad. How are you on this Monday? Great, great. Good. Good to be here. Listen, the BC Liberals had two election losses, and is this rebrand the thing to turn the party's <laughs> fortunes around? I, I think uh, it would be a little bit optimistic on their end to believe this is what is going to reverse their fortunes, but it was something that Kevin Falk had promised, and now it's coming. So BC United will be what the party is known as going forward. This is obviously driven by the right-wing flank of this uh, party. It has been a free enterprise coalition for a long time, uh, merging together federal conservatives and federal liberals. Uh, and there was concern from conservatives that the liberal name actually hurt them uh, in some more rural and suburban riding. And with that push coming, uh, they have now moved away from that liberal brand to a united brand. And there's been lots of jokes about how it sounds a lot more like a soccer team than it does a political party. <laughs> That's exactly uh, what we were saying this morning. <laughs> the team here at uh, CKNW. And I feel, Robin, there's opportunities here. I think we're going to start seeing fundraising emails that will joke about season ticket drives and, you know, have your seat for BC United. And my guess is we may even as early as Wednesday see scarves being used to some of the paraphernalia uh, that the party is looking at, uh, you know, to try to incorporate some of that messaging. Maybe even Kevin Falcon will show up in a BC United jersey. I think all of these are opportunities, but there's a long road ahead. I think this is far more complicated than just a name change. Uh, there is frustration over uh, what the BC Liberals did, especially near the tail end of their 16 years of rule. Uh, there are concerns around missing some real fundamental pieces around affordability, tolls on bridges, housing prices getting out of control, childcare options becoming so limited for especially those in Metro Vancouver. And BC United will need to prove that they have solutions around that issue rather than just you know, people forgetting the Liberals because the name's no longer on the ballot. For sure. Um, there's no election call. Or there doesn't seem to be an election coming up yet. So does the timing work for the party? I think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing it 
now, Rob, and I think there was worry internally, and I heard about this a lot from those inside the party saying, well, I don't trust David Eby. He's going to call a snap election. Then we're going to be stuck in this middle ground where people don't know what BC United is, but we don't want to be liberal. I think there's now a confidence internally that they believe David Eby when he says the next election is going to be in the fall of 2024. And then that gives the party time to figure out uh, what United looks like, but more importantly, gives the public time to understand that those BC Liberals that you may have voted for in the past, that's now BC United. And we're going to see a large-scale blitz about that. I've also been told that Elections BC had told the party they could have used a bracket. So on the ballot, it would have said BC Liberals bracket BC United or BC United bracket BC Liberals. They've opted not to do that, which surprised me. I think when you have a new leader like someone like Kevin Falcon, you don't want to have any excuses for why you've lost. And, you know, if he does lose the next election as BC United, he may be saying to himself, well, it was because people didn't know the party name. You, you know, you, I think I think he's fully embracing this at this point, Robin. You know, you you talked about earlier that the conservative branch uh, of the party, you know, thought that it would be confused with the federal Liberal Party. So, what do the new Democrats think about this? Yeah, so they're obviously going to try to sell the message here, Robin, that this is the same party. Don't be fooled by a name change. The BC Liberals that you hate—that's BC United. Uh, in terms of other messaging from them, it ultimately doesn't matter that the BC NDP is who they are. The problem they have is reframing it from a party of John Horgan to a party of David Eby. And there's an introduction that's going on there as well, that the public uh, is familiarizing itself with the new premier. And that is almost more challenging than a name change, is the public knew what John Horgan stood for, they knew what the party with John Horgan's leader stood for, and they're trying to figure out what the party with David Eby as the leader stands for. And that's going to be the process the NDP goes through up until the next election. DC United now has the challenge of people getting to know Kevin Falcon, who they remember from the Gordon Campbell era in some regards. But for many you know, younger families, uh, that is not as significant. He's not someone they're familiar with, while also incorporating a new name. So there's going to be a little bit back and forth. No doubt we'll hear from the NDP on Wednesday when the name becomes official here with a rally uh, in Metro Vancouver. Uh, we will no doubt hear from them reminding people this is the same old party and don't be fooled by a name switch. If, if the reason you don't like them is because of their policies, don't, don't be fooled by this name change. I know it's still early, but is it catching on yet, this BC United? Because we've been talking about it since November. I think, Robin, if we went down the street and asked uh, 10 random people from the CKNW <laughs> there in downtown Vancouver, one person would know what BC United was. I, I think probably most people would laugh and, and guess that it was a soccer team. Um, oh. I haven't tried it yet. Maybe that's for Wednesday's story. That's your story uh, we'll on Wednesday. Look forward to it. <laughs> 10 people uh, what BC United is, because I, I firmly believe that people do not know what this is, even though... They've announced this phased roll-in that they're going to propose this as a name, uh, incorporate it as a name. When are they going to do it? But by the time we get to 2024, my assumption is that most people who vote 
will know what BC United is. And that, and that's why you need this lead up time to get people familiar. Yeah, but at this point, I, my guess is nobody has any idea. It's a good it's a good thing that there is an election. Yet. How do party <laughs> insiders feel, though? Uh, do they think it's a bit of a desperate measure? I, I think there, there was wide scale support here. But I know I have spoken to those who come from the liberal part of the party. And we've heard Josh Johal talk a lot about this, that they think it's a bit silly considering provincial elections are won, in essence, with where federal liberals go. We know that most federal conservatives will vote vote for what is now the B.C. liberals, what will become B.C. United. Most, if not all, federal NDPers vote provincial NDP. Where elections are won are where federal liberals end up voting. And it always seemed to me that liberal was actually a strategic advantage because those are the voters, those centrist voters in Metro Vancouver, the ones you're trying to convince. And I've heard that time and time again from those who consider themselves more liberal, big L liberal in the BC liberal tent, that they don't get pivoting towards the right. And we know this theory of splitting the vote on the right. The BC conservatives now have a a position in the legislature with John Rustad as an MLA and now the party's leader. All of that being said, it's almost more significant to get centrist vote than it is right-wing vote. So that's some of the the frustration I'm hearing, but largely this was universally supported. And I think it's it's a fulfillment of a promise that Kevin Falcon is part of his victory, which was a decisive one getting rid of the name was something he had committed to and he's forging ahead with it. But there, there, there are a lot of still questions about whether this is the most um, prudent way to move about trying to win back the center, because that's where you need to secure this election, especially in Metro Bank. Yeah, Richard, I think you're very bang on with your analysis here, but don't go away. Okay, we've been talking about this for weeks, months, it feels. Surrey and its policing mess. Will the city stay with the RCMP or go with the Surrey Police Service? It was the focus of the municipal election and the new mayor, Brenda Locke, campaigned to keep the RCMP, but the transition to the Surrey Police Service had already begun with recruitment, etc. When all is said and done, whatever the decision is, it's going to be costly. And that's where the province comes in. Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth is set to make a decision. We've been talking to Richard Zussman, Global BC's Ledge reporter. Um, Richard, what are you hearing? When could there be a decision? So it sounds like the decision, Robin, is coming not this upcoming week, but the week after that. And there are still some things at play here. Public Safety Minister, Solicitor General Mike Farnworth recently uh, received a report uh, from his public servants that is currently being reviewed around uh, the decision of what to do around policing. Uh, We are starting to see things point toward the decision from the province, which would be to keep the Surrey or to keep moving towards the Surrey Police Service and getting rid of the RCMP in Surrey. But that is far from the final decision. Uh, There are a number of factors at play here in terms of understanding the staffing levels and what the RCMP would be able to do in terms of ensuring there are enough officers to properly police the community and ultimately. Oh, did we lose Richard? I think we lost Richard. Um, might be a cell phone issue. Um, we've been talking about um, the Surrey, the city of Surrey being caught up in the middle of a policing mess. Uh, will it go with Uh, the Surrey Police Service, as it has already been transitioning, or will it stay with the RCMP? 
Uh, this is a matter that's been left with the uh, public safety minister, Mike Farnworth. And according to Richard Zisman, who has been reporting on this for, it feels like, weeks, uh, the minister is going to make a decision sometime next week. We thought we were going to get a decision last month, but uh, he has been relying on a report from his own uh, department to talk about the uh, the pros and cons of both uh, police services it's going to be a very tough decision because regardless of what decision is made, it is going to be a costly one because the transition has already been underway. There is the um, uh, the buyout package to think about for those officers that have been recruited for the Surrey Police Service. So it's, uh, it's a tough one. I know there's been a lot of uh, public opinion on this, especially in Surrey. It was the reason uh, it was the center of, of the municipal election campaign. It was the center platform for Brenda Locke, who ended up winning. We have managed to get Richard Zisman back. Hey, Richard, welcome back. Hey, Robin. I've had phone problems that just powered off. You know what? It's probably some merger that happened. I'm not going to talk about that right now. But let's talk about... Brenda Locke, she got herself into some hot water recently. She has claimed that the Metro Vancouver Mayor's Committee has backed her plan to retain the RCMP, but that backfired, didn't it? Yeah, it did. And it's it's not what I've been hearing as well. So I'm not sure where I got cut off. But ultimately, the answer is we're going to hear from Minister Farnworth. The expectation is not this week, but next. And we also heard from Minister Farnworth on this issue that you mentioned, that ultimately, uh, Metro Vancouver's um, Committee of Mayors and Councillors did not unanimously support this idea of staying with the RCMP. There were a number of councillors and mayors who uh, did not uh, put their hand up and say that this is what they support in the region. And it becomes a very complicated regional issue here as well, because uh, what happens for policing in terms of the RCMP in Surrey will likely have ramifications on other police forces. If there is this mass hiring around Surrey Police Service, uh, where do they get those officers? Does that have an impact on other regions? If the RCMP loses a foothold in Surrey, what does that mean for other communities that rely on the RCMP? Does it mean an influx of officers there? But does it also change the footprint the RCMP has in British Columbia. All of those are things that impact different mayors. And then there's the political lay of the land as well around uh, whether they want to see a province stepping in on the jurisdiction of municipalities. You said it a number of times. Brenda Law campaigned on this. They believe that this is the right of Surrey to determine what they want to do and the province should ultimately butt out. So there's a lot of pressure points going on here. And Part of the concerns have been that not all the information is in front of us. There's been a lack of honesty. And I think that plays to the point that the Brenda Locke and her comments last week, it backfired a bit because it it starts people wondering whether, well, if you're going to fudge the details on this a bit, what else are you not telling us around costs, around transition and all of these things that are um, so crucial holding this whole decision together? All right, Richard, thanks so much for your time this afternoon. I know you have to get back to your reporting. Let's chat about chatbots. This form of artificial intelligence seems to be ubiquitous, targeting just about every industry. Let's talk about its use in therapy. Now, a computer programmer in the U.S. has created a program called Replica. It's an app, and basically it offers users an AI companion, and this is to quote them, who cares 
and is there to listen. It now has more than 2 million active users. So let's bring in Andy Brar, who's our regular tech expert. Andy, where do you see this going? Robin, I, I, I think, <laughs> you know, I don't own a farm, but if I did, I would bet the farm that AI-powered chatbot therapists are the future. And it's because... If you look at the World Health Organization, they estimate that there's a billion people worldwide with a mental disorder. That's about one in 10. And not everybody has insurance or can afford to see a therapist, you know, face to face. So but there is definitely a need. So it's a scalable type of service that I think will become popular because of the power of AI to understand us and to to act basically as a therapist would. It certainly has an ad advantage of being cost friendly for people who don't have benefits uh, or, you know, maybe on the lower income side. Um, The founder of this app says its range is from autistic children who use it to warm up before human interactions to adults who are lonely and need a friend. What are the advantages of, of, of that? Well, for a lot of people, I think it's the it takes away the stigma of asking for help or knowing that there's a human on the other end. And, you know, I think, you know, and I'm really interested in, in these chatbots because I wonder if you broke it down by the sexes, you know, who what sex would use it more, men or women? And I think for a lot of men who maybe have that stigma of, of going to see a therapist, this might be a great entryway into learning about therapy and, and giving it a try because they could do it whenever they want. They can do it in private. And more importantly, they can do it on their smartphone just by having these chats and realizing the advantages of therapy. And then maybe it, they, from there, they would want to see someone in person. Uh, the other side of that coin is they might have a bad experience and then they might not want to see therapy because they said, oh, I tried it with this chatbot, but I didn't like it. So it's hard to say, but, but the majority of the research shows that people actually prefer talking to these machines because of the, the, the stigma the, that's not attached to talking to a real person. You make a really good point about stigmatization, but what are these chatbots, chatbots I hate this word because I can't spit it out. Yes, are hard. they ever human-like enough? Like, are they human enough? I feel like well, you just need that human touch when you're getting therapy. Well, there's a couple of things that a chatbot can't do. And and when you have face-to-face therapy, there's a lot of nonverbal behavior that you're going to show. And your therapist would be able to pick up on that. An AI-powered chatbot's not going to be able to do that. But they are trained to uh, basically ask open-ended questions, listen to the responses that you would say, and then have a prompt of, of what to reply ab- about that. So if you're having a bad day, you're feeling depressed, you know that would then trigger a, a range of different responses. So the ones that they're using right now, they're, they're actually training it with cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, which is a very popular uh, therapy method. And, and it's starting to work. But what's different, and I think with ChatGPT um, becoming more and more popular, is it's going to start to remember what we're talking about. And it's going to have that memory uh, and basically a data set of all the conversations we had to then power in the future. And I think that's where everything changes. When the more you chat with these AI-powered chatbot, the more it starts to understand you and then the more it can help you uh, in the future. So I think that's where it can go. And I think what you're going to see, Robin is therapy, chat, AI-powered chatbot therapy as a service. So maybe a monthly fee because they have your data and they know it gets better and better the more you talk to it. And I think you're going to see companies out there try to monetize off that. But what about the danger of something like using it for marriage counseling? What if it says, hey, you should leave your partner and it's bad advice and it shouldn't be the advice? Well, this is where it gets really interesting. Is this is where liable? it gets murky. Yes, like who is liable if if this chatbot is giving you bad advice or if the data set wasn't, you know, 
um, robust enough before they they rolled it out. I think that is the big issue because if you look at a traditional therapist, there's a governing body that regulates them. Whereas these these are companies that you know are global. You can download an app, you can maybe sign a subscription, and now you have your AI powered therapist. But who has the liability? And I think the, the hype right now is, is going faster than the actual clinical research on the effectiveness. And so they've got to have, tread these waters carefully. And that Replica app that you mentioned, they're trying to position themselves as a companion app, just like you have, have a pet and you know that be your companion. It's not your therapist per se, because the, the, it's a gray area right now. But in isn't terms of that dangerous chatbots. too? Because it's not real. That is not no, a real companion. And the question is, can you build rapport with an AI chatbot? Because we know that you do build rapport with therapists. And and I, I'm wondering if that will happen with the chatbot. And, you know, the only time will tell, Robin. AI has just kind of hit the scene over the last year, and it's changing every single industry, and it includes therapy in the future. I mean, I get it's, it's meant to help people who are lonely, maybe reduce anxiety because it's like having a pet. I don't know. I, I get a little bit worried about something like this. I, I do see the cost-effective side of it. I do see the stigmatization uh, elimination side of it. But I, 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 I kind of worry, I got to tell you. Uh, Andy, thank you so much for uh, your time today. Thanks, Robin. We're going to head to Vancouver City Hall because there's a push by two Vancouver City councillors to allow for more events to be held in non-traditional spaces. Tomorrow, a motion will be put forward to council that basically aims at ramping up the licensing that is needed to do this. And one of those councillors is Sarah Kirby-Young. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Hi, Robin. Thanks for having me. First of all, can you give us an example of what you see as a non-traditional venue hosting an event? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is really about uh, supporting and incubating pop-up style events uh, and artists that are, you know, trying to find their way and give them a platform. So uh, I'll give you an example. When I attended earlier this year, which was in an office tower, actually, in downtown Vancouver, it's called the 100 Amigos Art Show. And so what you had is, you know, office use by day and then the lobby of that office building transformed into a gallery that showcased visual work from 100 local artists. Um, they had live music playing, people gathered, spilling out onto the patio, and it wasn't something that you would normally see um, after the business district in the office um, area sort of closed down. And so that provided the opportunity to have an event that could really showcase some visual uh, artists that are sort of um, trying to become established. And at the same time, the art display was able to stay and so that tons of people could see it during the day when they were coming to and from work. So that would be one example that would lead to mind of something that I went to this year that was a super creative event in a space that you wouldn't have expected it to be in. Was this a free event or was the business making some money out of it? Uh, no, that was uh, that was put on by a, a local group a company called Opal Projects. It's looking to um, support artists and give them a platform. And so they obviously had a special event license to do it. And um, the artists are able to sell their works and sell the art. And uh, they had the opportunity for people to buy drinks and that supports some of the costs of hosting the event. Um, but uh, you also had a great landlord that allowed that space to be used. Let's talk about the motion itself. What needs to change? You talked about licensing. Yeah, so the city of Vancouver has something that's called the Arts Events License Policy. Uh, and about a decade ago, back in 2013, uh, the council and staff of the day looked at this and realized that uh, these type of events were not permitted in Vancouver. So 
if you want to have a music event in an art gallery or, you know, when a retail store was closed, you want to have a pop-up art exhibit, for example, um, that actually wasn't allowed in the city of Vancouver. And so they did some work and launched a pilot program for about two years um, and changed the bylaw so that those things were possible. Um, but it's very limited, so it only allows for two or three events per month to be held. And what this motion is doing is looking to increase the number of events that can be held monthly so that it provides more opportunity for those events and for those spaces to be utilized um, at times that they traditionally are are not being used. Yeah, it's it's kind of pivoting like what we did in the pandemic. Yeah, that, that's a really good point, actually. If you think of it, we pivoted dramatically with patios because we hadn't allowed those curbside patios before. And um, huge public benefit from that. People loved it. You felt like the energy was different in the city, and they sort of said it shouldn't have taken the pandemic to do that. And I think this is similar thinking because um, up to the pandemic and during it, we've lost a lot of art space in the city of Vancouver. Um, so this uh, is a way to sort of be creative and use the space that we have. Could this go beyond the arts community, though? Uh, absolutely. I think there's always an opportunity to, to look and be more creative. Um, I think in general, one of the things we're trying to do at City Council is make it easier for people to hold events of all types. And so there's a pretty broad range here. This could be album launches, book launches, um, and other things. But yeah, absolutely. I could see nonprofits, for example, that wanting to do pop-up style um, events that might be fundraisers. Um, that would be another great application as well. You mentioned that this was a two-year pilot project. Did it fall by the wayside? What happened there? No, they did it as a pilot before they made it a permanent bylaw, um, and they did make it permanent in 2015, so about eight years ago. Um, but as I said, it was limited and only allowed the up to three events per month. And so we're seeking to really amp that up uh, so that we can have more events and more vibrancy in the city. So it's a bylaw that exists, but it's very restrictive. Right. right. What kind of reluctance do you see behind it, though? Um, I don't see a lot. The response has been really positive. I think that when the idea originally came up uh, a decade ago, there was a lot of consultation done with traditional businesses who um, were concerned, perhaps, if you're a licensed business, that this might impact them. And I think what we've seen is that uh, there weren't any concerns after the two-year pilot, um, and they put it in place. And these are very different kinds of events um, than might be held in a traditional pub or a nightclub, for example. Um, this could be. This is tied to liquor licenses as well for events. Is that an issue? Is that going to be something that you know other members of council might go? Oh no, let's not do this. No, I don't think so. This council has been really supportive. Um, we've got a park board right now that is moving forward with allowing um, drinking in parks, um, treating people like adults. We've, um, as a council, have really supported the pop-up patios. Um, there's plazas now in local neighborhoods. You'll see them again this summer, such as off of. Canby Street or South Granville, that people can go and have a glass of wine outside um, and enjoy a public space in a plaza if they want to do that. Um, and so I think this is really about making a much more fun and vibrant city um, where, you know, there's an opportunity to sort of just be more relaxed and enjoy that outdoor space that we have. Sarah, why are you so passionate about this? Because I think people need some fun. <laughs> We've come through a <laughs> pandemic um, and I think people are ready to get out and get back together. But, uh, you know, we have, I think, the highest concentration of artists per capita. Um, in Vancouver, in the country. And I think that a lot of that art is hidden and it's difficult for people to find. And the, the joy and enthusiasm that you see on people's faces when they get to go and experience these things is phenomenal. So think about something like the Vancouver Mural Festival when they have um, the pop-ups and all the studio, um, the artist studios in the motel at the bottom of Main Street and they transform that space while it's waiting for redevelopment to artist studios and then it was the hub during the mural festival um, in August and people would go down and walk by, listen to some live music, enjoy the space outside. It just makes 
it's a really fun and really interesting city. Yeah, we should make Vancouver more fun, huh? <laughs> I think so. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if you've ever been down Granville Street in downtown Vancouver, it always it doesn't always feel safe, and it, sometimes it feels a little bit dirty. And these are big reasons that people don't actually go down there, and that's hurt business. You see a lot of empty storefronts. So how do we bring back the vitality of Granville Street? Now the city is working on an 18 month plan to revitalize this historic part of Vancouver. And Vancouver City Councilor Sarah Kirby has been ta- Kirby Young that is has been talking with us today. What's the status of of the plan now, Sarah? Uh, City Council recently gave staff direction to proceed with the green light with the planning exercise for Granville Street. This is for the Granville Entertainment District for the three blocks from Robson to Helmican. So really the heart of kind of what we know is the iconic um, entertainment district and wanted to expedite and move that forward. That'll take place over about 18 months. Originally it was going to take a number of years um, and we didn't feel that we could wait because as you said, Granville Street needs some reinvigoration and some new energy and some new life to it. Um, but we also took a number of steps, such as saying, while you're doing that planning, we know that we have an incredible shortage of hotel rooms in Vancouver, for example. And so let's, at the same time, take in applications for those because they are a great fit uh, with the um, with the area in the neighborhood. And we have a shortage of 10,000 hotel rooms in the city of Vancouver. We've actually lost rooms dramatically, and so that's limiting our ability um, to, in terms of for tourism, in terms of jobs, economic impact and spending. And so really looking to revitalize and reboost the area. Do you think we need new development or do we do, or do we fix what's there now? Uh, I think, I think absolutely we need both. So uh, we're welcoming new projects. There's some interesting ideas that have been put forward, such as for revitalization of the Hudson's Bay historic um, building downtown, uh, really keeping that heritage facade, but adding office above, which brings new energy and new life and new people into the area, which is always positive and uplifts and, and sort of adds those positive eyes and ears on the street. Um, also a great project proposal for 800 Granville, which would revitalize the historic facades of the existing um, buildings in the Commodore block there, um, as well as improve the facilities of the Commodore ballroom so more music events could be hosted, but that would also similarly add office above um, bringing a new development and new, uh, new life to the area. Um, one of the other things that uh, we included direction was to look at bringing forth a really bold and exciting design for new public space in that area in Granville Street. We hear a lot about the shipyards, for example, in North Vancouver and how popular and well-recognized that's become. That's a destination. Um, it's always packed down there. It's got restaurants. It's got a skating rink, but a really great use of outdoor public space. And so we've asked staff to look at options to do something um, bold for kind of a, a brand new kind of fun exciting vibrant space that people could spend time in um, and potentially a pedestrianized Granville Street. What about Nordstrom leaving? What about that building? Yeah that was a big disappointment um, and it was interesting that it was actually apparently their highest performing store. Yeah exactly. Um, so, yeah uh, so that was disappointing um, but it was a decision I think corporately for them to leave Canada and leave the country and when you're trying to build up the street it's sad to see a, a large retail anchor like that go. Um, there's some bright spots coming in, such as for the new Cineplex Rec Room, uh, which is going to be an exciting concept where there's entertainment and things to do, which is more family-friendly. So again, that brings diversity into the area. It's not just nightclubs, um, as well as movies. Um, but definitely, we want to see um, something um, that brings some energy into the area that goes into that Nordstrom space. 
Yeah, you know, it was easy to blame the pandemic for a lack of foot traffic down in that area. But Granville Street has not been without its problems before. You talk about the nightclubs. You talk about people who were getting into fights and lots of young people getting drunk. How do you see this differently? Well, I think bringing diverse uses into the area really helps so that it's not just nightclubs. It's places that um, families and different folks want to go. Not everybody wants a nightclub experience anymore. Pubs are becoming more popular. Um, and I would point to to when we did the Granville Promenade, if you remember that. So we've done that for a couple of summers now, that pop-up event where we shut down Granville Street on the weekends. And uh, the buses came off it. Uh, it was pedestrian-friendly. Um, the downtown Vancouver group did a fantastic job of programming it. There was a stage, and then you had organizations like the Mural Festival that came in, or Public Disco, and they did takeovers, and there were local entertainers. And it just transformed the area. It felt like a different street. You could feel the energy. You saw people... You know, families and, you know, people walk their dogs and people, um, you know, on scooters that were just enjoying the space outside. And so what I think it Granville needs is a reinvigoration of uh, kind of upgrade new developments and new uses that bring people down to the area. You know, you talked about the fact that this plan could have taken a few years, but now you've whittled it down to 18 months. But developers say, you know, enough with the studying. 18 months is too long. Let's get on with it already. What do you say to that? Well, that's why we also gave staff direction to accept things that we know make sense there. So things like um, expediting and accepting um, an application for the 800 gravel project I mentioned. It includes the uh, revitalization of the Commodore, um, as well as accepting hotel applications because we have such a shortage of hotel rooms. When you yourself walk down that strip of Granville Street, uh, what do you see? How do you describe it? Um, I think it's I think it's a city that or it's an area of the city that was left to language language because uh, the building heights are restrictive in the area uh, and so that has precluded some of the new projects like the ones I talked about um, and also really an investment in public space is important so that's an area that people feel um, that is welcoming and inviting and safe and that they want to go to so. It's sad when you see some of the retail vacancies. It, everywhere in downtown was hard hit during the pandemic. Granville Street, I think, is the hardest and has the highest vacancy rate. So um, it's just like Gastown. We need to invest in our neighborhoods in order to make them great places to be. If you could pick one priority, though, what would it be? For Granville Street? Mm-hmm. Uh, I definitely would. Um, I think I think it's, well, I'm going to pick two. <laughs> yeah, sure. You know what? Well, yeah, go ahead. Pick think, two. Okay, why don't we do that? I think it's letting some of these projects move forward, but I also really think it's investing in the public realm, right? So it's, you know, it's whether it's having a stage there, it's having seating, it's, uh, you know, whether it's pedestrianizing it, it's just creating a, a great place to be. All right, Sarah Kirby Young, thanks so much, and good luck with your motion tomorrow. Thanks, Robin. Let's switch gears now and talk about the features you won't have in your cars. <laughs> Come this new production line. We've been talking about electric cars are now being built without AM radio. Now, Ford is taking it one step further and stopping all of its cars from having AM radio. Jeremy Cato is an automotive journalist at CatoCarGuy.com, and he joins us now. Jeremy, first of all, let's start with the rationale for not putting AM radio in new cars. Uh, there's a couple of things. What the what many automakers are saying is that the EV powertrains, electric vehicle powertrains, uh, cause so much electromagnetic magnetic interference that you're getting a lot of static in EV uh, in EV radios in cars. So they're arguing that because there's so many other things available in terms of in-car entertainment, especially with 5G now rolling across, 
people use their their smartphones as the in-car entertainment source. But the AM radio is just uh, something that will irritate customers more than it will uh, support them. So that's number one. Number two um, is that what you've really seen is a lot of European car makers um, pushing away from providing AM radios. And that's been more driven by the fact that in Europe, there essentially is no such thing as an AM radio network anymore. And so the European car makers are, are acting in their own best interests in that they supply cars to Europe, and Europe is the third biggest car market in the world. Uh, why provide a car with a costly piece of technology that nobody can use? The conspiracy theory theorist in me goes, <laughs> how much does you know Apple or Google have a, have a hand in this to get control of the market? Well, you know, it's an interesting point you make because uh, one of the European automakers that's been at the vanguard of taking AM radios out of cars is Volvo. And in Volvo's today, their their uh, in-car entertainment systems, their infotainment systems, are actually Google-powered. Um, so I don't know for a fact that, uh, that that's the case. But I do know that this trend has been going on for quite a long time. I mean... Uh, Tesla, you know, is, is, is an American automaker that, you know, phased out AM radios as far back as, I think, 2018. Um, and it's simply because Tesla buyers don't listen to AM radio. And, you, you know, I know this is an AM radio station, but you do have <laughs> other ways to listen to CKNW. Um, and frankly, when I listen to CKNW, I listen to it through the Internet. Um, so the AM Band is also one of those amplitude modulation. I, I did look it up what AM actually stood for. Uh, is just <laughs> well not, done, well played. <laughs> it's it's just not used uh, as much as it once were was used, and it's being phased out in a lot of places. Uh, as 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 we all know, it's just a fact. Yeah, but you know, yeah, you mentioned CKW. <laughs> it's here on AM. Um, what's going to do for our listenership for people who rely on news and weather and traffic while they're in their cars? Because not everyone's buying a new car. Well, you know that's true, and that's that's a big problem. And uh, so, not everybody is phasing out AM radio. So I, I went into the little digging uh, earlier today. Um, EVs from Audi, BMW, Porsche, Tesla, and Volvo are already now sold without AM radio. So if you listen to your AM radio and you want it, don't buy an EV from those automakers. Uh, and BMW has been on that trend, oh gosh, since uh, almost a decade now, since the first i3 and i8 were launched. And, and to, but I, I don't think I answered your question directly. And the, the, the question is, I, I guess the simple answer is, don't buy a car from one of those automakers. Well, I mean, I mean, you talk about um, you know these electric cars offering uh, you know deals, etc. There is the fact that some of these cars are offering up satellite radio. You get it free for six months. They get you hooked on it, and then you have to pay for it. So that seems to be a pattern too. And you know that's another that's an interesting question about satellite radio. I especially now I I don't really see the value in satellite radio. My my smartphone. Uh, gives me an entree into every kind of music, news, and information, uh, podcasts, all of it. And I, I wouldn't pay a nickel for satellite radio. I, I already pay for my um, 
uh, my supply, my iTunes uh, All your other uh, subscriptions, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and it's easy to get hooked on subscriptions, and that's kind of a different discussion. Um, so I think I think what what AM bands and AM broadcasters are, are clearly doing is sort of spreading out their tentacles. I mean, uh, you know, like I said earlier, I, I, I don't listen to CKNW on the AM dial. I, if I've got a car that has uh, the AM version of it, I'll listen to that or I'll listen to it over, over the Internet. And, and in fact, if I want to listen to CKNW when I'm out of town, because uh, I want to keep up on news information about British Columbia, then then that's then it's the internet. You know, that's it. That's the way. Well, we're really happy here at CKNW to hear that. That's how you're getting it. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, this isn't going to go down without a fight. I know the National Association of Broadcasters in the U.S. is launching a fight, but how much time do they have to get their argument in front of this? Because obviously, it started with Tesla. Now Ford. There are going to be other car makers right behind them. Well, I think at the root of your question is when will EVs, which are really the excuse, whether or not it's a factual excuse is a different issue. Uh, we can talk about that if you want. But I don't think it's just going to. I don't think it's just going to be EV because if you look at what Ford's doing, it's doing it with all of its cars. It's just a matter of time that the others follow hmm. suit. Is what I'm getting at. Yeah. Well, the EVs give them the excuse. Now, yeah, Ford exactly. is, 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 is really positioning itself as the EV maker amongst American-based car makers. Um, how long will it take? That was really your, your question. Yeah. I, I, I think you will see the, sl- the steady erosion of, uh, of people listening to AM. It's, it's been in decline. Uh, I, I looked up here that, you know, according to Inside Radio, AM audiences are, are really in, have been in pretty steep decline since 2017, especially in the United States. Uh, and unfortunately, that's where all these things uh, are driven by, the, the, way, the way audiences behave in, in the United States, regardless of what we want in Canada. Our, our entertainment and news is very heavily driven by what's offered in the U.S. So I would say you're, you're going to see other automakers get on this bandwagon because they just don't want to spend the money on this technology that is in decline. Yeah, I can see that coming. Okay, yep. Jeremy, thank you unfortunately, so much. Unfortunately. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, I'm going the way of the dinosaur anyway, right? Um, Well, as a guy who used to have a show on CKNW, I I feel the pain. (laughs) Jeremy Cato, thank you so much for your time. Have a great day. My pleasure. Take care. Okay, take care. Hi, everyone. This is Robin Gill sitting in for Jazz Joe Hall, who's on vacation. Well, this will not come as a surprise. A new survey by Ipsos shows Canadians who have who are renting, have not have given up, actually, on ever buying a home despite the softening of the housing market. Sean Simpson is the Vice President of Public Affairs with Ipsos, and he joins us with more on this survey. Sean, break down the numbers for us across the country and specifically here in B.C. Well, we're showing a bleak picture here across the country. 63% have given up on ever owning a home among those who don't already own one, of course. And what's remarkable about that is that it is unchanged from last year. So despite the fact that housing prices across the country uh, have um, come down a little bit, uh, you know, housing prices go down, but mortgage rates go up. So for most Canadians uh, who aren't owning, the prospect of, of jumping in uh, with a down payment and paying, you know, 5 or 6% uh, mortgage rates uh, means that uh, their attitudes haven't changed. And of course, in British Columbia and Ontario, where housing prices are uh, higher than they are in most of the other places across this country, uh, concern is, is, is even greater. A lot of uh, 
people are just throwing in the towel and saying, I'm not sure I will ever be able to catch up to the housing prices in this country. You talk about the interest rates. There has been a pause, and I know that the Bank of Canada is going to be talking about interest rates again this week, but they're still high, right? Is that is that the issue, or is it that they can't even get the down payment? Well, I think it's a combination of, of all of those things, uh, which is why uh, so many renters uh, feel very frustrated about the situation. You know, most Canadians uh, believe that uh, owning a home continues to be the best investment a person can make, and yet 69% of Canadians, that's up two points over last year, believe that it's only for the rich. There's a growing divide in this country between those who own a home and those who do not own a home. And those who are on the outside looking in um, are, it's not, je- it's, it's not jealous, it's, 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 it's maybe some anger, maybe some frustration and the belief that, you know, if you're looking in on the outside, the system is rigged against you. Does it affect a certain age group or demographic, or is it right across the board? Well, uh, for those people who are, say, Gen Xers, uh, sort of 35 to 54 or so, um, and those uh, among those who don't yet own a home, they're the most frustrated because they've you know been saving up and they just can't seem to get caught up. Younger people are a little bit more um, optimistic about the future, that maybe things will change, that maybe they'll be able to own a home at one point in their life. But younger people are also more willing to examine uh, alternative forms of ownership. For example, uh, not just uh, themselves or with their their spouse or partner, but maybe with uh, buying a home with uh, other extended family members or maybe buying a home with with friends. Um, they're, They're trying to find different ways that they can make this dream a reality. That is a big trend, joint ownership with friends or or family members. I remember when I was a reporter, I was doing stories on that. Um, So when they're choosing to stay as renters, rent is high too, though. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the the, the thing is, is that you you sort of don't have an option, right? You have to live somewhere. So if ownership is not is not uh, affordable, not an option for you, you're stuck renting. And the fact that rents have been increasing so quickly over the last couple of years means that fewer and fewer dollars are able to be allocated towards down payments. Um, and so I think a lot of people are getting the feeling that they are going to be renting for the rest of their life and they're not going to be able to uh, save and put that equity into a home. And if they're... Uh, putting money towards rent and not uh, equity or savings, how are they ever going to be able to retire? All of these things are linked together, and it, it is amounting to a growing sense of frustration among Canadians that government is not doing enough to address the housing affordability issue in Canada. So when you say government, is it federal government? Is it municipal government? Is it provincial government? I think it's a pox on all your houses. Uh, the, the federal government sort of sets the tone, but they only have um, sort of limited measures available to them. A lot of the policy decisions, uh, particularly about uh, zoning and 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 building, uh, making more land available to be built, is is controlled by the provinces or even the municipalities. Uh, so all three levels of government need to work together to not just tinker in the margins of demand, you know, give this person incentive and try to try to put a cap on foreign ownership and all these, these things that do a little bit but not a ton. The real solution is that we simply do not build enough homes for all of the people who want to live in Canada. Uh, and so we need bold leadership uh, over the, starting in the short term, but over the long term, to create more homes for people in Canada. 
So if owning a home is no longer a traditional life milestone like we've all been brought up to think this way, is this a new era, a new generation looking to invest their money elsewhere? Well, that, that could be an alternative, right? Um, but if people are, are spending just as much on rent as they would on a mortgage but not building that equity, there may not be a lot of money left over to invest in other vehicles. Uh, so it's really um, a challenging situation for these people because they feel stuck. Uh, many believe that, that there is a path to financial freedom without home ownership, but it's more challenging that way. And, and so people still want that avenue to be available for those who want to own a home. John, I guess what I was getting at with that question is, are they basically looking at enjoying their lives more? That was something that came up in your, in your survey. Yeah, yes, certainly um, many are deprioritizing home ownership and, and putting more into, say, quality of life. Um, but this is a trend that's reversed a little bit since last year. You know, after the pandemic, there was a bit of a joie de vie. 59% said they're going to focus more on quality of life than the dream of home ownership. That's down 15 points since last year. It's only 44%, which, again, underscores the relative importance that people are placing on home ownership and they're willing to make lifestyle sacrifices in order to attain it. Okay, Sean, thanks so much for your time on this Easter Monday. It's been my pleasure. Sean Simpson is the Vice President of Public Affairs with Ipsos. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m., on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.